Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, it's 9 a.m., and the pet experts are in the building. This is the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, here are your hosts, Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-host, the pet expert and soon-to-be grandfather himself, <laughs> Mr. Rick Bruce. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Lee. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Are you a grandpa yet today? <laughs> no, we're, we're working on it. Well, <laughs> I'm not doing anything but doing a show. <laughs> but but she's working on it, and I'm pretty darn excited. So, Well, you should be. I mean, having a grandchild born into the Proust Pets business, what could be better? I know how proud you were when your daughter was born and how happy she has been growing up as a pet store child. And now we're going to take it another generation, aren't we? So we have, uh, you know, we have a fantastic family. And uh, I think the fun thing about all of this is it just reminds you of how important it is to kind of just, you know, reach out, feel, touch, understand, accept, figure out how you can actually rally as a family and really be that entity that we all fantasize. You know, we all want to be that like tremendous family and then life gets in the way and sometimes events like this kind of stop and remind you, hey, What's really important here and what's really important is to give, you know, 100% of my attention and and respect and appreciation for the miracle of life. It's just amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we live with it every day at the store, you know, even with the animals, you know, having births and such. Right. That's pretty amazing stuff, you yeah, know. But it's just not the same thing when you look down and you see that my child. Granddaughter. And my granddaughter. You will so. never be the same yeah. again, my friend. And, and I reach out to all those who are <laughs> grandparents, going to be grandparents and say, hey, you know, this is marvelous and enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy it. I think we all can appreciate the I, I appreciated absolutely the first time around. It was at a time when life was really hectic and busy, really challenging, if you will. And and what's kind of nice about this time around, I can support my daughter in in many ways, and I can also be there as much as I can be for a child that that is going to be a miracle. You know? Absolutely. And the good news is when you get, if you get tired, you get to give them back. So don't forget <laughs> this time you don't always have to keep them around. So that's good news too. But Rick, you've been pulling off miracles this week because you pulled off another one <laughs> that I cannot explain. But what the heck was your storefront doing on Stephen Colbert's show on CBS nationally across the country. What the heck is going on? No, we don't know. To be honest, with you, <laughs> we don't know. It was, you know, we had a friend call and say, "Hey, you guys were just on there," and then they sent me a, a the, you know, a feed, a, a Facebook feed or whatever, and uh, and and I watched it. And I'm like, "What? How did that happen?" So we have no idea. I can only assume that. Um, I don't believe it's in-house that somebody was doing it behind my back. Mm -hmm. I think it was honestly a customer that must have uh, reached out and done that. Somebody that I don't know will ever tell us, but somebody nominated us. I mean, they didn't learn about it, you know, (laughs) by reading the papers. 
Well, so to, to me, I, I would. It was just fun. It was fun. Well, so. this is this is turning into a miraculous week. This first week of December for my friend Rick Pruce and Pruce Pets. But we still have a show to do, and we're going to talk about something that that I think has grown in interest as time goes on. And I still admit to you, I don't completely understand them. But hopefully, after today's show with you and Sean Murphy, I will. be understand them better how the heck do axolotls come into existence and what is it about these amphibians that people are so falling in love with them whether it's uh, dart frogs or frogs in general and i mean there's just there are so many cool critters that people are saying the heck with fish I like hey, these. Hey, <laughs> we still got our fish customers. I know. No, but um, so there's a lot of excitement right now um, surrounding axolotls. Um, I think a lot more kids have stayed home, have been on computers. Uh, one, they tend to be pretty comical in their appearance. And two, Minecraft now has a, a character out that's that way. So our goal is to just simply... Let's talk about it, and are they really the right pet? You know, so that's the real question that you want to ask. And are there other underwater pets that might fit the bill that you might enjoy that might be a little more appropriate depending on your circumstance? Well, the key ingredient is understanding how to keep them properly because all animals uh, do not require the same temperatures of the water that they're in and the conditions that they live in and understanding that is an important part of success. And we're going to get into that again today as we talk all about axolotls. And our guest will be Sean Murphy from Bruce Pets, who knows an awful lot about them. And I'm sure, Rick, you will be chiming in as well yeah. because yeah. I know you've got a lot of time invested with these guys as well. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick, the that uh, Sean is going to give us a more historical perspective. I just happen to be the one that's in the field helping customers one after another, making sure they make the right decisions. But I'd love to have uh, kind of a zoologist perspective on it, along with uh, a practical idea. If you're thinking about this as a pet, does it work? We're going to help you on that one. Well, that's the conversation we're going to have this week on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show with Rick Pruse and Lee Cohen on 1320 WILS. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And, Rick, we have with us on the line a returning guest. It's Sean Murphy from Pruse Pets, who frequently is on with us to talk about some of the creatures that he just seems to know better than a lot of people. And we're glad to have him back here. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Good to be back. Hey, oh. hey, Sean, before we get into this, because Lee's about ready to jump into the axolotl conversation, underwater and amphibians, but I want to go landside for a minute and talk a little bit about a uh, little hats off to you and, and to your efforts. Uh, I was reminded this week of how someone that's been in the field of the zoo field, you know, being a zookeeper for many years and, and doing the things that you've done for so many years, really... Uh, really shows off. Uh, for those who don't know, we had a very special wedding this this uh, this week, and that wedding was of Fred and Ginger, our, 
our two red-footed tortoises. And I wanted to thank you for putting together such a such a nice ceremony. And at the same time, uh, the cage that you set up for them just definitely kind of speaks loudly of your talents. And I just wanted to take time to, you know, invite people in to take a look at that front display that you made under the counter and uh, how appreciative I am that, that uh, Fred and Ginger have a new nice home. Oh, I, I appreciate that. It means a lot to, to hear something like that. And, you know, I think we all can agree that no, there's nothing like making a great home for, you know, especially beloved store pet. So, how long, how many years uh, was their wedding wedding uh, anniversary? It wasn't a wedding; it was a wedding anniversary. Yeah, we so. renewed their vows for uh, year thirty eight. Thirty eight, fantastic! Mm. And how does that compare to typical? Uh, Typical weddings, yeah, turtle <laughs> relationships. I mean, do they usually I mean, are, are last we talking that human relationships or tortoise relationships? <laughs> I, I think human relationships don't have the average lifespan. No, I'm sure. My wife would. and I are, uh, well, we're about the same number of years. So, okay, uh, we're 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 doing it, but that isn't necessarily the average. <laughs> they're pulling. They're 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 pulling. They're meeting this. <laughs> what's that? Debbie remembers meeting the tortoises. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they might have a couple of years on you guys, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, my question is, is it common for tortoises to stay together that long or to be monogamous like that? I mean, is that a, a proto- <laughs> They don't have any choice, Lee. I'm just <laughs> They're saying, in the same environment. They are pretty <laughs> but that, slow. But the question would be, in nature, uh, redfoot tortoises or tortoises in general, what kind of pair bonding is there? Yeah. So um, there are a lot of tortoises. It's really interesting. They can be communal species or singular. Um, being that they're going to inhabit the same type of area due to uh, accessibility to food and water and shelter, they inevitably are going to run into each other. So monogamy isn't something that we typically see in nature. There's very few species on the planet that are strictly 100% monogamous. Um, they may have certain individuals that they prefer to pair up with but like within the tortoise community if there's you know let's say 10 males and 10 females it's just going to intermix like between all of them yeah which in for a genetic standpoint on the most in most situation that's going to be an advantage oh yeah definitely um and that's how most animals um go about their mating procedure is they're looking for the best genetic match possible who's going to have the best genes to pass on and you notice that more in birds um pretty much than any other animal because males have to be very elaborate with their coloring their vocalization and their mating displays and so the better all of those are the more likely he's to mate might have to be the fact that uh uh if not she can just fly away so <laughs> Yeah, attraction and, and it's has funny. to be Humans big. Humans are the opposite. Females are the ones wearing makeup and doing their hair and wearing nice clothes, and most men just look like slobs. So <laughs> we, uh, we should take some notes from the bird kingdom, I think. <laughs> well, let's talk about, uh, if we can, some of these other creatures. Because, let's go underwater. Yeah. Let's go underwater. Yeah, me. because these right. axolotls, I just, I admit to you from the time it was probably three, four years ago. Uh-huh. I walked into your store, and I happened to see them there, and it was the odd spelling that gathered my attention. But then it was the odd looks 
of the creatures that continued to gather my attention. And I can see to you, every time I'm in there, I check them out. And it just seems like they have become among the more interesting animals that you see in a pet store. Am I crazy for thinking that, or is that pretty much no, common? Not at all. They are pretty much a prehistoric animal. There, there's so many unique features, um, both uh, from the exterior, from the aesthetic point of view, and the interior, from the genetic point of view, on these animals. Um, and the, the name is what instantly draws most people in, because, you know, they have, they always ask a lot of questions about them, and want to know a few things about them here and there. And um, then even like the areas that they come from in Mexico have interesting spellings, but then it's, it's the unique features of that animal that grab you. Um, they basically, they're, they're what called um, a pedomorphic um, salamander. So salamanders, just like a, a lot of other amphibians, will start out as an egg, develop into a tadpole, start to develop their limbs, live in water for a little bit, and then, um, usually if they have gills, those gills recede and then they move up on the land and spend their lifetime up on land, except that they're going to come in the water breed. But a pedomorphic uh, animal, like an axolotl, actually goes through a phase where they retain all those juvenile aspects, like their gills, but they become sexually mature and never have to move up onto land. Um, so it makes them very, very unique within the animal kingdom because when you're in that stage, um, you have to think of it almost like how stem cells can consistently regenerate and build new things. Um, so it kind of keeps them in the stage of being able to constantly regenerate themselves, uh, which is one of the other things that draw people to them is that they have the ability to lose their gills, use their, lose their limbs, and then regrow them because they are stuck in this pedomorphic stage. Yeah, and... Uh... That's kind of a interesting thing with uh, animal care for these guys is that occasionally they'll, uh, if you have more than one in a tank uh, and they pass by each other, they can't see very well. Uh, you'll have one that'll just they lunge eat. You know, I don't know if there's a name for how they eat, but they just when they smell something, when they vaguely see something, the image of something that they think is something to eat, they go after it. And it's not uncommon for the leg of one to come by the mouth of the other. And that guy lunges and grabs it and oftentimes can break it or tear it off. And guess what? It's nothing to freak out too much about. It grows back. So. Yeah, and kind of the, the, the interesting thing is um, among all, like, cold-blooded animals, typically if the, the temperature cools down, they can slow their metabolism and then not have to worry about food. And so for a lot of reptiles, they'll live off of fat storage doing that. Axolotls aren't much different, but when they get that cooling down, it actually uh, bumps up their regenerative capabilities. Hmm. So when we do have one that loses a limb or loses some gills or gets a scar on them, if you lower their temperature, their body is going to focus all their energy into repairing whatever that injury is. And then once it's repaired, they just go right back to normal, and you can start to slowly raise their temperature back up. And that's the one thing we should talk a little bit about. Um, man, there's a... There's just a craze for them right now, and there always has been. I mean, uh, whenever we've had axolotls, and now we have a rather constant supply, knock on wood, that's been kind of one of those weird ones, uh, but we have a constant supply, and yet there's more popularity now than ever, and it has to do you know, with a few variables, but ultimately it comes down to the incredibly cute nature and look of them 
and then everything that you know, even the Minecraft, knowing what that is. But there, there's a cartoon or an animated feature um, that uses the axolotl as its role model to design the dragon that all the kids fall in love with. And uh, I'm going to feel terrible that I can't remember the full name of it. But, may, Sean, do a quick Google search on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually trying to find that right now. Uh, something uh, your dragon. Character in, well, there was a character in Tailspin called uh, Bullethead. Yeah, or, no. sorry, um, was in the episode called Bullethead Baloo. But um, yeah. he was an antagonist in that. Yeah. But um, I think I know what you're talking I just can't well, remember it offhand. So, at any rate, uh, I guess the point is, is that there's this huge, like, passion for the animal, but we have to put a giant cautionary note, and you've already hinted at that, is that not everybody will have a situation where they can keep the water temperature below 70. And if you don't, and if you're not, there's a couple things you can do that if you're close, it can be rather expensive to make an appropriate animal environment for this particular creature. Yeah, and what one of the things that, you know, I think is a stressor with, with any um, companion animal that we want to send home is that environment is always, like, the utmost thing that you can do for them. you got to figure, like, especially an aquatic animal, it's their home, uh, it's their living space, it's their feeding space, and it's also their bathroom. Um, so there's a, a lot of very particular upkeep that goes in with it. And when you look at an animal like an axolotl, although they come from the Mexico City area, that the canals that they used to reside in are actually pretty cold. And so you start to add a lot of stressors to them when you add heat to it. Well, then that heat is also growth for bacteria if you don't have proper filtration going through there. And next thing you know, your whole system can be out of whack and you're going to be constantly trying to you know, get your animal back on its feet. Well, and, and Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, to, for people to understand, typically when you have fish, if I'm not mistaken, you typically want to keep the temperature 77, 78 degrees, something like that. But these animals have to be below 70, correct? Yeah, so if you're looking at tropical fish, then yes, you're going to want you know somewhere around mid-70s or so. But for an axolotl, an ideal temperature is like closer to about 60 or 62. And they can fluctuate down to 55 and upwards of about 68. But once you pass that 65 threshold, uh, you're more likely to have some stressors with them. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I always find interesting, and we can talk a little bit about the, you know, why they have the unusual name, where they come from, but bottom line is they come from Mexico, and being that, um, you would think, without some thought about not only um, longitude and latitude, but also elevation, <laughs> we, we look at it a little bit differently. You would think coming from you know, Mexico that it would be coming from warm environments, but that's not the case. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, originally they they were found in several lakes, and uh, Xochimilco was like the original like lake that they came from. Um, but going back to the time of the conquistadors all the way to the present, a lot of the lakes around Mexico City have been dammed off, made into canals, and a bunch of other things, mainly just to stop flooding into to Mexico City. And so because of that, they've lost a majority of their habitat. 
And when you have those large lakes and you have water constantly coming into them, there's not a lot of time for them to warm up um, because water is constantly being replaced and constantly moving in and out. Um, you're not going to have the sun beating down on a stagnant piece of water, so it kept the water cooler for them. Um, but now that a lot of those freshwater lakes have been drained and there's just a few canals left, one, you kind of took away, like, the large area that they used to have it, but now you have, like, these more stagnant waters that are shallower and they're able to grab more heat. Well, then that heat's adding stress and they're not going to be able to survive in it. And the other thing that I found particularly interesting is just that it comes from such high elevation that the natural water temperatures are generally cooler as well, and and that uh, creates a problem. Now, one thing that's interesting is their feeding habits are really, really cool, but their feeding habits tend to present a little bit of a problem. Um, well, when, well, Rick, we need to take a quick break, but why don't we come back with that and talk a little bit about the feeding habits and uh, a little bit more about axolotls when we're talking with Sean Murphy from Proust Pets. And we'll be back right here on 1320 WILS. You're tuned to the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. It's 9.35 and we're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we've been talking this morning with Sean Murphy from Proust Pets. And our topic of conversation is all about these crazy looking little creatures called axolotls. And Rick, I'm guessing <laughs> that you have done your homework and you have figured well, out... I guess guarantee you there are people out there raising their hands say i know i know that one but uh yeah how to train your dragon if you look at the, dra- the dragon it's really really obvious that you know he they looked at the axolotl saw how adorable that was and then ended up turning that into a dragon so that's kind of fantastic and that's one of that was the first and most substantial raise and in interest on that particular animal and then uh minecraft having a character you know just threw it to an extra orbit but I do, I do want to take just a minute and talk about, you know, what do you need for an environment and why it is that it might be for you and why it might not be. And first of all, do you have a place where you can keep the water at least below 70? You know, don't even think to go there if you can't keep it below 70. And it's going to be a little bit of a stressor if it's in the high 60s compared to the mid 60s. And then the next thing to think about is this lunging, like, in, like impulsive, you know, whatever goes in front of their face, they go to reach to The eat. food chase. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> if there's any gravel in the way, they're going to swallow that as well, and that can kill them. So I would imagine, Sean, it's leaf litter that they would be hanging, mud and leaf litter that they would hang out in that would uh, afford them, you know, the adaptive capability of having that feature without getting impacted. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Cryptic camouflage is a huge thing among amphibians. And so um, the normal color phase of, of most axolotls is going to be like brownish, black, gray with like some green splotches. And they really do like in, in the wild, it's, they'll go to the bottom of whatever river or water system that they're living in and basically just hide underneath the dirt and leaf litter. And then they hunt by kind of feeling out the water. They can sense a lot of stuff going on it, in it. And then when food comes by, they basically make a suction cup uh, with their mouth and just suck up whatever's coming towards them. Um, they do have, like, some vestigial teeth, but for the most part, they're just sucking 
whatever comes near them into their body. So um, part of having them captivity is you have to be really careful about any type of substrate that you might put down with them. But a lot of times we just recommend, you know, nothing because yeah. they, they will suck all that stuff up. Especially when they're young. When they get a bit bigger, you might be able to go to sand. Uh, but when they're young, the best thing to do is just a bare bottom. And then the other thing to mention is that um, they don't like fast-moving water. So in spite of the right. fact that they're damming up and the temperature's there, the reality is that elevation keeps the water cool, and they aren't. And the leaf litter that they're hanging underneath tends to calm or prevent much water circulation. And then they just tend not to do well, or at least perform as well if you have a lot of circulation. So the simplest filter system that we have for tropical fish happens to be a perfect filter system for the axolotls, and that's because it's air-driven, and air-driven filter systems tend not to be a high-volume circulation tool, but they tend to be a very good biological filter, uh, kind of harking back to what you were talking about before. You need an adequate amount of biology or ecology in the environment to kind of make sure that the pollutants that the animal puts out, that the food that's rotting on the bottom puts out, doesn't kill the animal itself. So a simple sponge filter can work or any kind of filter that you can turn way down so that the circulation rate is really, really, real slow. You'll see where we have them. It's just like trickling water into the system so that they don't have too much circulation. No, I mean, uh, the, the best thing, like adding on to what, what you're talking about, is we, we always try to go for naturalistic um, enclosures here the best we can, like replicating the wild. And really when you look at where they come from, uh, you hit the nail on the head. Slow-moving water that's cool um, with lots of coverage. So, I mean, at our store, we, we have such a wide variety of aquatic plants that they can serve as a dual purpose. One, the axolotls like to hide under them, but also they act as a secondary biofiltration source on top of the sponge filter that we would be doing in there. Yeah. Um, so not only do you create like a proper environment for the animal, you're creating something that's actually aesthetically please, pleasing for people too. Cause you'll walk up and you'll see all this great greenery in there and it's like clean water. And um, typically with most animals, the more hiding spots you give them, the more likely you are to see them because then they can feel comfortable getting out, hiding wherever they need. So adding lots of plants into that too is really helpful. Yeah. And, and then we have um I'll always have them go and at least find one den, if you will, uh, one structure. It might be a clay square tube. It might be a skeleton head. It depends on the child and what they're interested in. It might be a, a SpongeBob house, but just something that they can easily protect themselves or feel protected, and you can still kind of see them as they put their head out in front. So, And then the foods, we'll get into that, uh, and then we'll move on to maybe some other underwater uh, go ahead. Well, actually, Sean, I wanted to ask you a question in terms of lifespan. How long do axolotls typically live, and how big do they get? I mean, are they going to grow much throughout their life, or are they pretty much going to be what you see from when the time you get them until the time that they go? Well, I mean, a lot of times when we get them in, they're, they're considered babies, the juveniles, anywhere between you know, two to maybe four inches long, but a good-sized axolotl um, can actually get upwards of 18 inches. Um, the more nominal range of them is about, you know, ten. I'd say eight to maybe yeah. 12 inches, like somewhere in between there, but, like, you can get some really good-sized ones. 
Um, the interesting thing about growth rate versus lifespan, too, is that when we're looking at the genetics of reptiles and amphibians, they don't have the same type of chromosomes that mammals do. They aren't XY, they're ZW. And basically all that means is that they form in different ways and they're constantly reproducing and making new cells, which is part of why an axolotl can regenerate. So given the proper environment, proper food, and no environmental stressors, you could easily see an axolotl live decades. I mean, right, right. now we kind of say like, you know, 10 to 15 years, maybe 20, but as we're learning more about these animals and we can set up environments um, better for them, you might see 30 years or 40 years out of them because they're just going to constantly regenerate. And kind of the cool thing about that as well is all reptiles and amphibians kind of hit like a, and this is more of reptiles, but because of their genome, um, they hit like a certain average size and then they exponentially slow down their growth rate, but they actually never stop growing. It just goes in very slow increments over the course of a long period of time. So that's why, you know, you can have axolotls as big as 18 inches, but the average is about half that. And the other thing I want to mention is just because you don't have a cool hop part in the house, it doesn't exclude it. It just, um, if you've ever went out to buy a refrigerator or a freezer, you know, they tend to base price, you know, a couple hundred, 300 bucks, and then to be specialized for an aquarium trade, you know, probably an adequate chiller for, um, let's say, a 30-gallon axolotl environment might might run you about 500 bucks. So that isn't necessarily prohibitive, and it's something that we could look at uh, for any customer, but it's in contrast to maybe the $100 setup or less to just get an axolotl set up and going if you happen to have that house, you know, that basement that's remodeled but you keep cool or you just happen to be one that, like in my house, we dial our temperature down and it's always cooler, you know, that can be particularly helpful. On rare moments, I've had, I have a lady that's had her axolotl now for six years and she just switches out two-liter bottles with ice. So... The problem with that is if you go away on vacation, somebody else has to be switching out those ice bottles right. in order to do that. And it, it's a chore, a responsibility that you, one, you have to learn how to do it, you know, watch the temperatures, make sure it's staying constantly low. And you got to figure out how many two liter bottles it's going to take. And it's just an added chore. Doesn't exclude it. So let's talk a little bit about what I want to do is say, okay, maybe that's not practical for the most person. Maybe you want to spend a hundred dollars for a pet for your child maybe you want an underquat he's he's fascinated she's fascinated with amphibians sean what else do we have out there that might be more tropical that actually in their natural wild maybe 75 77 80 degrees is uh kind of as they say warm and sunny in in uh <laughs> in your home well, um, at that point, you'd be looking, if you're looking for aquatic amphibian, you'd definitely be looking at the African dwarf frog. Uh, not to be confused with the African clawed frog. Uh, both of them look very similar when the clawed frog is a, a juvenile, but an African dwarf frog is uh, native to like equatorial Africa. So, I mean, it, it's going to be an area that is just consistently in the mid to high 70s, which means the water is always going to be warm. Um, and they're actually relatively easy to take care of because uh, as long as you're doing like a good biofiltration and sponge filter, um, 
and just making sure that they have access to food, they actually thrive in captivity and they're communal. So you can always do multiple frogs in a setup like that. Sean, we need to take one more quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue the conversation and talk about frogs because they are an intriguing idea for some people because they are just so neat uh, and something that is such a part of people's childhood. So we'll have that conversation with Sean Murphy right here on 1320 WILS. It's the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320 WILS.com. Back here with the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And Rick, we've been talking this morning all about some very interesting pet ideas for people, whether it's an axolotl, and now we've gotten into some frog ideas. Mm-hmm. What a surprise coming from Sean Murphy. Sean, talk a little bit about why some of these frogs make such intriguing pets for people. Well, I think like uh, growing up, every kid has an interest in frogs at some point. Um, they're in so many children's books and in so many cartoons that we kind of get enthralled from an early age. Um, and then from there, um, you know, if people stick with it, they, they find out that these are really cool pets to have. Um, but it just kind of depends on what you're looking for. If you're, if you're typically a fish person, but you're interested in amphibians, there's a couple different types of frogs that work out really well for that. And one of them being the African dwarf frog, um, which is a, a tropical species of frog and pretty easy to take care of. And then the other is the African clawed frog, uh, which is much larger and has to be solitary, but it kind of, um, feeds that need for people who like love amphibians but love keeping fish tanks. Yeah. Uh, solitary in that uh, one, they have a big mouth. They'll tend to swallow other fish. And, and uh, yeah, they can live with, uh, you know, if the tank's big enough, you might be able to have multiple frogs in there. But but I, what I like about the dwarf frogs is that you could have, you know, if we think of the, we take a little nature walk and we look outside, we're not looking underwater, although frogs spend a bit of time underwater. We're looking on the banks. And these are particular frogs that typically spend no time on the banks. So for an aquarium where it's kind of enclosed, you're trying to keep a simple environment. You don't necessarily want to make a land environment and, and you just have a 10-gallon tank to work with. Uh, man, these, these little dwarf frogs are fantastic. Um, the only obstacle that I always find is that people try to put them in with fish and it can work, but you got to make sure they get fed. You know, you need to make sure that um, everybody else isn't eating the food before them because they're not, they're not as, they're waiting for something to show up in front of their face that they can smell and go after. And they're not going to go up to the top and eat the foods that they would have to, to compete with the others. Well, and hopefully it's not fish They're they're kind of like a sit and wait predator waiting for, you know, uh, aquatic larvae to come near them, bugs to land on the surface of the water, small things to near up from Because, like, really when it comes to frogs, they don't have very powerful legs. They're not really, they're not as good as swimmers as you would think they would be. They're just um, um, more like lunging towards the food. Um, so, you know, again, like, you know, small mouth, they, they don't have tongues, they don't have teeth. Um, they're pretty much waiting for stuff to get close enough that they can lunge out really quickly and just get it as close to them. And as Rick mentioned, if they're in with the right type of fish, it could work out, but you really have to keep an eye on them to make sure that food is getting near them. And they can live a long time. We have a customer that, uh, not a customer until she called this week, she's up in uh, the Mount Pleasant area, I believe, and uh, had her daughter come in and pick up some stuff because one of her two frogs wasn't doing well 
and it was a dwarf frog. Uh, she had two dwarf frogs, and one was having some issues. But then to to ask enough questions, you know, they were 10 years old. And, um, you know, she was chatting with some of the groups, and they were, you know, many of them weren't making them 10 years. So what's interesting is that she had bought them as a grow-a-frog, and it's something that you didn't even buy at a pet store. It's just something that was sold over the counter. And she's kept them in this really small environment that would be inappropriate, uh, but she didn't know that, and yet the animal lived 10 years. So we've got her now into a larger tank and with a good filter and some good food, and uh, she's excited about that. The one might just be in its old age and therefore, or at least as a, as a result of its keeping uh, kind of pass, but the other one might live for another 10 or 20 years. Who knows, you know? So so we're putting them in a good environment. That's good, and, and I do like the fact that they are tropical, so... Most people can have them. So um, I guess what I was going to ask, I know over in the reptile room there are more underwater characters that are um, amphibians and such. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? I was thinking of the the toad. Um, uh, There's a yellow belly toad right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, which uh, comparatively is kind of similar to the African uh, dwarf frog except that they do come up out of the water. Uh, but very quick, very small, uh, can live communally. And we set them up relatively the same. We want um, a really good type of uh, like sponge filter in there, something that's not creating a lot of fast-moving water. But these guys like actually live in like mud puddles and stuff out in the, the wild. Um, but they're very, very quick, and they're fun to watch, especially when you drop food in, uh, to just see them darting like all back and forth. They kind of have that... Um, uh, that stereotypical amphibian kind of movement where it's like, now you see them, now you don't, you know, like they're so fast when they want to be. And then we also right now have a marble newt, um, which is a really, really cool species of newt. That is the colors on them are just fantastic. They are essentially like an emerald fluorescent green with a fluorescent orange stripe down their back. Um, mm. And they're another one that depending on the, uh, time of their life that they're currently in are either going to be fully aquatic or fully terrestrial or go back and forth. Um, and their care, I always compare very similar to an axolotl. Um, they like low temperature. Uh, they like low water movement, but good filtration. And then you just got to make sure that you're feeding them stuff small enough that they can grab without really sucking a lot of things, other, other things up into their mouth. Now, Sean, when it comes to the amount of time, that people have to put in with these different types of pets? Are they just uh, a daily care and they pretty much live their lives? Um, I mean, it depends on how in-depth you want to get with it. I always say the beginning process of any animal, um, for, for me particularly amphibians, is it's, it's pretty in-depth to get it set up because you're, you're trying to replicate a natural environment that's going to make this animal comfortable. Once that environment gets established, you just have to maintain it, which then cuts down tremendously on the amount of care. Um, so just, you know, regularly like doing water changes as needed and checking the filter. And most of them, you know, um, with the exception of axolotls that we feed you know, pretty much like every day, um, things like the newts um, and like the frogs can go every other day with food just because I like a more natural stance on it. Sometimes I'll feed them two or three days in a row and then maybe skip a couple days, feed them a day, skip a day, feed them again, and just kind of off balance it a little bit 
because uh, out in the wild, that's kind of how it would go for him. And so you kind of see a little bit more action and movement out of them at that point. But a lot of them can be conditioned to when it's feeding time. So if you consistently, you know, tap the water a couple times, or if you have a certain feeding cup, they can start to recognize those things as feeding time and come out for you before you even throw the food in. The last thing that I, I you know, that I really want to mention, especially axolotls, is don't be in a rush. Right, uh, we get this all the time. People come from great distances because we're one of the few stores that actually have a nice supply of axolotls, and then they get there and they want to have everything done and ready and go home and and have all the success. Yeah. And although there are steps that we can take that can kind of reduce the problems and increase the chance that they can do it, um, it's a lot easier if they just come in and say, "What do I need to get this axolotl environment going? And when should I come back to pick up the axolotl?" And that makes life just a whole lot better for us, for the axolotls. And, you know, a lot of times <laughs> patience is a is a virtue and, and, and sometimes missing from those that are coming in. So, well, it's you know, it's a good opportunity to kind of, okay, use that excitement, but let's, let's, let's be patient. <laughs> and, and something I'd like to add to that really quick too, with, with like the setup and being ready is, like you said, a lot of people, it's a, it's like an instant gratification. Like, hey, like I wanted this animal, I'm going to come in and buy everything and get it now. Um, and especially with Christmas coming up, you know, we have people looking to get, you know, new companions for the holidays. One of the best things you could do if you're looking at those being a Christmas present is come in early, get the things you need, get them established. And then that way, when the holiday actually arrives, you have the ability to then add the animal in, knowing that like you've tested the water that everything's working correctly, that you have proper temperatures and everything else. Now, Sean, when it comes to the decor for the tank, is there anything that people should be careful of to not get? Because I did hear Rick talking about uh, swallowing certain things and what have you. What should people avoid in order to prevent a problem? Um, You have always avoiding extremely small substrates. Um, and very tiny rocks so the animals don't accidentally ingest them. Um, You want to avoid things with very sharp corners, um, even though a lot of these animals can regenerate, especially the, you know, the axolotl. You don't want to have to put them through that. So you give them things with more rounded edges um, that they can go under and hide under. Um, If you're doing um, any type of plant, whether it's fake or live, you want, again, make sure that there's not things that they can get caught on. Um, you don't want them to get tangled up in anything, so you just want to have big, leafy type of plants in there. And really, the, that's about it. We've been speaking this morning with Sean Murphy, and thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Oh, it's been our pleasure. And, Rick, we are out of time, uh, but we will be back next weekend. So on behalf of our producer, Bruce, and my co-host, Rick Bruce, is Lee Cohen, wishing all of you a great weekend and a great weekend. We'll talk next weekend on the Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show. Meantime, please, please take good care of your pets. Have a great week.